As you are turning to James 1, um, we are um, really excited to be just plugging through this book and beginning to understand what God would speak to us uh, through his precious word. Um, I'm going to dive right in uh, for time's sake, but I just wanted to point you to a few of the announcements that are on the back of the bulletin, as well as you can find them on our website at tccrally.org. We'll be in James chapter 1 and looking at verses 19 through 27, and so I will read uh, those verses for us in their entirety, and then I'll pray and we'll, we'll seek to understand how God's word applies to us on this day. The word of God says this, James chapter 1 verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and doesn't bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray. Father, I ask that your mercy would fall upon us in unmistakable power. Because we need you to soften our hearts that we might humbly say in this moment, whatever you ask of us, that we will do. Wherever you lead us, that's where we will go. And so, Father, that's going to take a supernatural work of you in our hearts that we might say, all of me is all for you. And so, Father, I ask that you would strengthen your people to say that in the areas where your Holy Spirit convicts, and I ask that you would come alongside those who have not fully surrendered and trusted you with their lives and turned from trying to save themselves from the guilt of sin, and you would set them free today, and that they would genuinely, by faith alone, find hope in you. So do a great work through your word, I pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So words are pretty important. I don't know if you know this, but um, men speak on average between 12,000 to 16,000 words a day. Women, a little bit higher, just saying, just going by the stats here, they speak on average 16 to 20,000 words per day. That means that in a week, if you take the average around 16,000 words a day, in a week we speak 121,000 words. And in a year, we speak 5.8 million words in a calendar year. That's pretty daunting. <laughs> because that means there's a lot of opportunity out there, right? Right? Words make us laugh. Words make us cry. They warm our hearts and they anger us. They can comfort us or they can inflict deep pain. Words are pretty important. On top of that, when God chose to reveal himself, when he chose to say, I want a relationship with you and I'm going to do that through a means of communication, he did it through words. He could have chosen to make this a picture book. He didn't. It's a book of words. I'm going to reveal myself through words. And so his primary way of communicating to us was not just even oral words, but they were the written words of God. Words that he say give life. So what are we doing with our words? And what are we doing with his words? Have you ever said something you, didn't, you wish you hadn't said? Don't tell me you haven't. I know you have. <laughs> Have you ever had a time when what God's word said you should do, you did not want to do, and you didn't want to believe it? Anybody who spent some time in God's word would be able to say, yeah. Have you ever had time when you didn't love someone who clearly was in need right before you? Okay. Well, let's state it differently. That was all kind of negative. Let's state it positively. Have you ever received words that were really encouraging from someone and they really kept you going and strengthened you? Yes, you have. Have you ever read God's word? Those of you who have, you ever read God's word and obeyed it and experienced a unique and profound and deep joy from his word? He has sustained you as you followed him by his word. And have you ever served somebody and sacrificed either your time or your resources, even in your exhaustion, and it made a difference in someone's life? And there was a unique strength that you were given, a unique joy for being obedient and loving someone outside yourself. Have you, have you found that to be the case? Friends, that's the opportunity that James is inviting us into this morning. It is an opportunity. When you hear these commands of what not to do, he's also inviting you into an opportunity of what is out there for you. The feast and joy of following God's words. Not only with your and my words, but with our very lives. And so James tells us of opportunities to experience his joy. And he tells us the joy of three things. Number one, there is a joy in pleasing God with our words. A joy in pleasing God with our words. Number two, 
there is a joy in receiving humbly God's words. And number three, there is a joy of doing his word, especially, James is going to highlight, especially among the low income or the poor. So this is an invitation that James brings to us on the opportunity of pleasing God with our words and receiving his word humbly and then doing what his word says. And James says uniquely among the poor. So let's dive into number one here. As we look at our words, number one, he tells us the joy of pleasing him, pleasing God with our words. And look at the text, verse 19. He says, know this. This idea of no right off the bat is not just get an intellectual understanding, it is embrace it. With all that you are, get this, an intimate knowledge of what I'm about to say. He wants it to be the experience of your life, not just that you can say I memorized the verse. He says, know this, and then he says, my beloved brothers. Brothers, this idea of family, so it's brothers and sisters, it's all those who by faith in Jesus are his family, but why does he use the word beloved? He didn't use the word beloved before when he said brothers, why does he use it now? Because he knows he's about to say something that's going to pinch a little. And it's going to pinch for everyone. You know, I've experienced my own journey, and walked with many people on theirs. And when you deal with certain issues, you can say, I, I really struggle with that, or I don't struggle with that that much. And, but when it comes to the issue of the tongue, everyone, everyone has a struggle. And I would argue an intense one. And I think that's why James says, my beloved brothers, I love you. And I'm going to tell you these things out of love. Out of a common fight. But it's a fight for what comes out of your mouth. And so he says, his next words, let every person, <laughs> hear ye, hear ye, we've all got an issue. Let every person. Why does he say that? Because the temptation, when you begin to talk about anger and people saying misplaced words and people not listening, the default of the human heart is to think about somebody else, how they were angry at me, how they said something they shouldn't have. They should have listened to me more. It is self-righteousness. It is not soaking in God's word and applying it to the heart. He says, everyone listen up, because I'm about to say something out of love for you. And here it is. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This is Parenting 101. You want your kids to memorize something, you better memorize that one. And you better memorize it too. Not just that. On the college campus, in homes, at work, good night. The temptation abounds. He says, quick to hear, quick to listen. It means there is an eagerness 
to want to hear someone else's story. Some of us talk about the difficulty it is to get to know people. Just hard to get to know people, or there's a fear of trying to get to know somebody that's different than me, that has a different worldview than me. Friends, it's not that hard. Go up to someone and ask them to tell you your sto- their story, to just share about them and shut your mouth and listen. You'll make a friend. Why? Why? Because it is love for you to say, your story matters to me. I want to hear your joys and your pains. I want to come alongside you and I want to know you. You're not a project, you're a person. Listening communicates all of that. I just want to know you. And so he says, be quick to it. Eager. To listen to one another. And then he says, slow to speak. Why slow to speak? I tell you, it's a very daunting thing every time I get up here because the Proverbs promise this. Where there are a multitude of words, sin abounds. And I speak for a living. It's like, good night. It's like a train wreck waiting to happen every time. Where there are many words, sin abounds. Lord, help us. He's saying we've got to be careful and slow when we speak. Thoughtful, because our words, just one word, usually accompanied with a a tone or a facial expression, it can either make someone's day and bring healing or it can rip apart. And that's why he follows it up with slow to speak, slow to anger, because sadly, anger wants to talk. Many who are angry, they seethe. They're silent when they're angry but they can't hold it in forever. And when the anger bubbles over, the mouth talks. Slow to anger. And then some are just verbal processors, so right when they get angry, out comes words. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Why is this? Why is this? Because it doesn't bring about, as it says in verse 20, the righteous standard that God requires. He is inviting you in. You hear how he phrases it. He's assuming that we as believers want to please God with our mouths. And he's saying, when you speak, when you're angry, you're not pleasing God. And I know you want to please God, church. So be slow to speak and slow to anger. Anger should not talk. Hear me. It should not talk to others. You need to process it. You shouldn't talk and let somebody have it. You shouldn't go on Facebook and post how you don't like somebody or what somebody else did. You shouldn't use Snapchat and Twitter or Instagram, or any other means of communication to vent yourself. Don't use email and text just to tell somebody off. Anger talks too much. 
talks too much. And then, when we don't bridle our tongue, it is self-deception. We are deceiving ourselves. And one of the greatest deceptions of the human heart is that we call it righteous anger. I'm sorry, I've been counseling for 20 some odd years and I know my wretched heart. 95 to 98% of anger is not righteous. And we need to stop convincing ourselves that it is. And we camouflage it by when I can vent myself, I feel better. So does the murderer. So does the one who has stolen. It's called the fleeting pleasures of sin. Just because you feel better about something doesn't make it right. James says here, every person, listen, anger should not be talking. It should be listening. Why are you hurting? Why are you struggling? It should be listening. It should be slow to speak. And if you speak, speak to the Lord. Take your pains to him. Don't let somebody else have it under the guise of your righteous anger. Dear friends, if your anger is not about God, I want you to have glory. And I want this dear person to know you and to treasure you. I am so grieved over the fact that your standards are being broken. Then maybe you have righteous anger. But that's just not the case for so many. And what happens is when anger becomes about my rights, Protecting me, and we're at the center. When we speak, we create an atmosphere that is toxic. We hurt people. Poisons the room. And then when you feel better about your anger, and I feel better about my anger, and we wonder why the other person can't get over it, we've missed what has just happened. The Proverbs say this in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. When you're angry, you're defending yourself. Oh, you're about to hurt me, so I'm going to jab you. I'm going to get you away. I'm going to put you in your place. I'm going to tell you how you're rotten. It's self-righteousness all over the place. But it's a sword thrust, and you feel good, so you can kind of walk away and do what you want. But the other person has just been stabbed. And many of us don't just say the one jab. We say the several jabs, right? We twist. And then we wonder why it keeps hurting. Why don't you get over it? I told you I was sorry. Anger is poisonous when we are at the center. And James says... We must take the opportunity to honor God with our mouth. What we say matters. What we say matters. And we've got to fight against those feelings in our heart that says, this has to come out. 
<laughs> we know what that's like, don't we? This has got to come out. No, it doesn't. It doesn't, I promise you. Be released. You need to get away. You need to go to the Lord. And you need to ask yourself, why am I so angry? And you need to plead with God, God, make loving that other person my primary agenda with my mouth. Make loving that other person my primary agenda because you used your words to give me life. And without them, I would be lost forever. So God, make my words a words that give life. Our words should be filled with his words. And we should be asking, oh God, how can I honor you with my mouth? Ephesians 4.29 comes to mind. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. None. He didn't say 5%. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is good for building others up. As fits the occasion, which means you're listening, you're trying to figure out what will best serve this person in order that it might give grace to those who hear. I've been saved by grace, I've been a recipient of grace, and now I want to give that away to others. It's a radically different way to think about how we talk. And he's saying that's where the most joy is found. Oh, I've been pleading with God that in my heart and in your heart, when you're about ready to go online and to start letting people know how, let them have it. And you're about ready to tell your spouse, you're about ready to tell your kids, you're about ready to tell your coworker off that God would just bring this to your mind and you would be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because James says at the end of this chapter, uh, look at verse 26. It says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, that's where I say we are deceived. That's why we feel like anger has to say something. It's a self-deception. We're not bridling our tongue. It says that person's religion is worthless. That's pretty strong. Religion isn't used anywhere else in the New Testament except right here. And it is this idea of you claim to be a, a worshiper, one who loves God. Well, it is worthless if you're not bridling your tongue. And why does he use that image of bridling? Well, it's the issue of a horse. Let's look at a beautiful horse. I love beautiful horses, and I would love for that horse to pop up. Yes, there. Okay, so doesn't that horse look beautiful and calm and sophisticated? Well, here's what happens when our mouth isn't bridled. It looks like this. We get angry. We kick people away. We push Self-preservation, not others' love. We are the bucking bronco in the soul. That guy's hurting, I promise you. <laughs> He's hurting. And that's what happens when we're not slow to speak and we are quick to anger. So James uses this illustration so that we would realize there's a lot at stake in how we talk. If you really want to study more about this, there's a great book by Paul Tripp called War of Words. I highly recommend it. That'll just help you take a slow and steady journey on how your words can build others up. But at the end of the day, friends, 
no matter whether you like what's been said or not, at the end of the day, this is God's word. And so James says, if you go back to verse 21, we have a responsibility. We've got to do something with it. And here's the responsibility, and that is to receive humbly God's words. You see verse 21, James isn't very linear all the time. He's taking several subjects and kind of moving them around. But right here, he's connecting verses 19 and 20 to verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Summary, the more you are in God's word, the more your words change. The more you are soaking up his words, the more your words know how to bless. But many times in our anger, we genuinely believe our words are more powerful than God's. Or, and I want to be cautious here, because I've seen this in a ton of Christian married couples, they use God's word as not a loving sword to nurture the soul, but in a self-righteous, condemning way, never even thinking about their own hearts, but just to beat them over the head with it. Oh, be cautious. Don't lead God's word as just truth and don't accompany it with love. You must accompany it with love. Too many people are beating people over the head with God's word and not saying this is for their good. Anger does that. And so he says here, therefore, there's something you do. You put away all filthiness. You put it away. And this is a unique verb here. It's this sense of taking off old, ratty, smelly clothes. What are these clothes doing? They're not protecting you. They've got holes in them. They're not doing what clothes are supposed to do. They have a horrible stench. And he's saying you should put those garments away in order to put something new on. Put away this selfish, self-righteous anger. Put away, he even says, just all filthiness, all wickedness. Put it away. And he says then put on or receive God's word. That's the antithesis. Change here for the, in the Bible is not just stop doing this bad thing. Change in the Bible is Run towards the good thing. Put on, receive and accept, internalize God's word. I would argue many of us are failing in victory against some of these core sins because we are looking backwards at sin. Stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this. Rather than saying, yes, stop doing this, but run towards what's beautiful. That's the invitation in James receive, accept what has already been implanted. Now, that's something that's crucial. It says the implanted word. Remember, James is talking to a bunch of believers. And so what he is not saying is accept the word in order that you might be saved. No, this is 
This is something that God has already done in the heart, the implanted word. It's something that we hear in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. When God talks about he's going to bring a new covenant. And when that new covenant comes with that wonderful Messiah, we know him as Jesus. When Jesus comes, something new is going to happen in his people. And here's what's going to happen. He says, verse 33 of chapter 31 of Jeremiah, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. God's word is here in the heart. It's planted there. But we must accept his word. We must say, I believe this word. This word is right and good, and I want to follow this word. So he gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell inside He gives us his word right here, and now we must say, I accept this. I accept God's word, and I want to follow it with all my heart. That's why he says receive it with meekness, meekness or humility. Humility is a sense of, you know what's best, God. I don't. I want to follow you with all I got. So receive his word with meekness. Now, There's a lot of applications to that, right? To receive God's word with meekness and to live it out. There's a ton of applications. But there's one that uniquely kind of struck me four o'clock in the morning this week. I woke up at 4 a.m., could not go back to sleep, happens to me sometimes. And as I was laying there, my heart began to be broken. It began to be broken for our culture. And honestly, uniquely, it began to be broken for those who are struggling with gender confusion. It began to be broken because those are real struggles. Those who struggle with same-sex attraction, those are real struggles. Just like some people have real struggles when it comes to, to other temptations. And my heart began to be broken. My heart also began to be broken But what I believe is a sweeping wave of lies that our culture is feeding us on some specific things that I think James is addressing here. And those specific things is that our culture tells us there's only two categories, acceptance or you're a hater. And the Bible doesn't talk that way. Remember, if we receive the implanted word, we want what the Bible says. And the Bible says, know what's actually outstanding and remarkable about the love of a Christian is that they can disagree with you and want to be quick to listen to you, want to know your story, want to come alongside you and care for you, And even though they disagree, they want to be for you and not against you. That blows all categories out of the water. Oh, wait, to disagree and to say something's not right, but to still love and not be a hater? Well, as I was thinking about it, I think this passage uniquely addresses three things that 
we must, I think, talk about as a church. And let's be crystal clear. Nothing that I say will give you an inclination of my opinions on HB2 or Supreme Court decisions or anything politically. This is not a political talk. I'm not about that. I'm about what does it mean to receive the implanted word with humility. And so I think the first thing is that verse 20 clearly says God has a righteous standard. When we are angry, we break his righteous standard. God has a righteous standard. It's spelled out for us in the Bible. He, knows, he says what is right and what is wrong. It's not something I can make up. I can't say I feel like this is right one day and this is wrong one day and then I change it the next day. He has a righteous standard that I must submit to. And so tolerance cannot mean that I agree with everyone. It must mean that I agree with God. It must mean that I agree with him. And so, when it comes to this issue, God has stated what is manhood and what is womanhood. And friends, he has declared it through the gift that he has given at birth. And just because there is a propensity to lean towards certain aspects of how people have defined gender doesn't make it right or it makes it Everything is defined on what you think God says. God has said what a man is. God has said what a woman is. And we don't get to choose. He has a righteous standard. Friends, I was watching a video this week and it broke my heart. Guy goes on to a college campus and he just begins to ask, are you okay with people who, feel, who are biologically men wanting to become a woman? Yes, that's fine. It's what the people were saying all over the campus. And they were just like, that's their choice. It's okay. And then they were like, what about women? Is that okay? Yeah, it's okay. It's, it's no big deal. Well, then he said, well, what if I said I was five feet tall? And they were like, yes, that's okay. Weird, but I guess it's okay that you would say you're five feet tall, even though I'm six foot five. No, I'm six foot two. Tried to elevate myself. But then what if he went on and he said, well, what if I said I'm, an, I'm Asian? And that's who I am. That's who I want to be. And they're like, I would ask you why you say that, but I guess it's okay. What are we losing? I'm not poking fun. Friends, I believe our culture is actually teaching us self-hate on a path of self-freedom. Freedom is only found in God's constructs. It says later in the book of James, it says, verse 25, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, his word is where freedom is found. Tell me who's more free. The guy who jumps out of the plane without the parachute or the guy who jumps out of the plane with a parachute? You might say, hey, it's freeing until splat. Freedom is found in boundaries and restrictions. And God tells us where freedom is found. And it's found in following him and his ways. And I believe our culture is telling us a message of self-hate that tells us that being who God made us is not okay. Let's move with our feelings. 
And it breaks my heart. It genuinely breaks my heart because there is a high rate of suicide among those who dive into same-sex attraction and those who give in to gender dysphoria issues. And why is that? Our culture tells us it's because people won't accept them. Or it could be because even after they give in to all of that, they still haven't found the acceptance they're craving. Because it's all about acceptance. Can they accept who they are? Can other people accept them? And I want to give a message of freedom that says God's word tells us where acceptance is found. It's in him. And anything else will be shaky and sinking sand. And we have teenagers that are being told this in school over and over. And when you ask them, it's okay. It's okay for people to think like they want to think. And friends, we are losing a generation. We're losing a generation that count what God says as optional. And James says, it's not okay with anger and it's not okay with anything else. God has a righteous standard and it must be followed. And two, it must be followed with meekness. Christian, we are losing an opportunity when we take a posture of hate rather than a posture of a listener and wanting to bless with our mouths. We lose the opportunity. And the third thing he says, receive the word with meekness, and that means whatever you say, God, even though it confuses my mind, that's what I want to do. We're not telling people that. And we're definitely struggling to say it with brokenheartedness and tears. The Bible is crystal clear. Anything that misses God in a solution for acceptance is rebellion. And it is broken. And the church has the beauty, the beautiful opportunity to step into brokenness. And to speak not just truth, but truth that radiates love. There's a different way to talk. And we must be about that. And so friends, when the Bible says that we must, that when James is talking here and he says we have an opportunity to please God with our mouths and that's going to be built upon us receiving God's word with humility because as we get his words, we will know how to encourage with our words. Now he says, soak in my word, soak in my word and how you talk matters, but now be a doer of the word. Be a doer of the word. Friends, no matter, as I've said earlier, if you don't like what I've said, all I'm asking is that you look at God's word and that you don't be guilty of what I'm about to read. Verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only. The hearers only are those who capture it as a concept but do not apply it to their everyday. He compares it. He calls it self-deception. You're lying to yourself. All of us are liars. And he says in verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, here's what he's like. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, but then when he goes away, he forgets what he's looked at. And he's begging us not to forget what we have heard this morning. And isn't it a temptation? 
you will be responsible for your heart receiving God's words this morning and what you do with it. And I pray you know that he loves you and his Holy Spirit dwells inside of you and he will give you everything you need to do this good word. You're not alone. But we must act. Isn't that what it says, verse 25? But the one who looks into the perfect law, I do believe there's an intentional thing with his illustration and where he wants us to look. Looking in a mirror at ourselves or looking into the law which shows us God. It's like a mirror that points up. That's where our attention needs to be. Look into the law of God that brings liberty. And when we persevere in it, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts. Some of us are terrified of doing. Call it legalism. No, it's legalism when you do it to earn acceptance. You've been accepted in Christ. Now he says one who's accepted is freed up to do. But verse 27 is really shocking. He's already told us what worthless religion is, and now he says this is what following and doing looks like. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Both of these themes will come up later in James, so I'm going to hang out on one of them, and that is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And I want to begin by saying this. Isn't it interesting? It is as important to God not to participate in immorality as it is to care for the poor. It is important to God to care for the poor as it is for you to be unstained by the world. He could have chosen tons of examples. This is true worship. When the heart overflows in personal holiness and intentionally dives in to need. They're not optional. Neither one. Not for our acceptance. But for our obedience. And so he says... You might say, where do you get this care for the poor idea? Well, he says to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Orphans and widows throughout the Old Testament, they were the kind of premier picture of poverty. Why? Because orphans and widows were known as helpless. When the man was the one who was solely the provider and he died, that widow was now bankrupt. No way to provide. She was poor. When that child lost its parents, that child was poor and helpless. Most of the time, they were in that situation by no fault of their own, a sense of guiltless poor. God says pure religion is that you go to them. Why? You see how he uniquely uses the word father to describe himself? Because he's a father to the fatherless. And he wants us to imitate him as we go. My little son 
Justice, or Bear, as we call him. Middle name is Bearcat. It's Ethiopian for blessing. Uh, we adopted him from Ethiopia. Yesterday was his gotcha day. Some of you who are not in the adoption world don't know what that is. It's just a good excuse to party. But the gotcha day is a day when we got our little boy from Ethiopia, May 21st. And we were in Ethiopia, and I remember he was terrified of me. 18 months old, had never seen a man that had any hair on his arms at all. He was terrified, terrified. I love that boy. Love him. He came running up to me in between services with a piece of tape over his mouth. And I was like, was this creative parenting or what? No, he just decided to do it. He just decided to do it. He's a joy. But there are things that he experienced in his first 18 months that have made adoption really difficult. His story is a story of brokenness, a story of loneliness. And I love him so much, so thankful that we are able to be a family together. He has a birth family and he has a forever family. We sat down the other night at, while I was praying over him and I just talked about his story. And he can recount his story. How a woman who cared enough to give birth to him. Set him under a tree in a eucalyptus forest. And a police officer heard him crying. Picked him up. God did that. God pushed that officer to him. Placed him in an orphanage. Where he had to fight for his food. We still have sensory issues because of that. Insecurity issues because of that. Then God placed it on the heart of one couple to try to visit orphans. He gave him a forever family. He's able to articulate every bit of that. And because of his story, he's going to know the gospel in such beautiful ways. Why does God say, I want you? to be about care for the poor. Because whether it's an orphan, whether whether it's a widow, whether it's someone in our community that is just down and struggling, when you, both poor and rich alike, and I say you in that sense, when any of us invest our lives in those of need, it is a physical picture of a spiritual reality. That's why he says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. When you realize you are bankrupt in the human heart, that's when you're ready for salvation. And when you care for someone who cannot pay you back and is broken and cannot do anything for you, you begin to see a picture of your own heart and you begin to understand the gospel. Why is the poor as a people precious to God? Because it teaches us so many lessons about his salvation. That's why he says in Luke 14, when you give a feast, don't invite those who can pay you back. Why? Because the gospel is a message to everybody that says we can't pay God back. This is not about earning. You can't do it. You just receive and let his blessings fall over you. When he chooses to tell about love your neighbor as yourself, he uses the good Samaritan in Luke 10. 
He uses the story about a man who was beaten and pummeled and is bloody and who was impoverished. Because poverty is not just financial needs, it's all the contributing streams that lead to it. Sickness and disease and unjust systems and generational lack of instruction and poverty. It's just all the things that kind of weave themselves into the person's financial straits. And isn't it beautiful that although our world defines rich and poor, our God says, you're all poor. You're all poor. Poor in the soul. And so if God has given you anything, you just use it to bless. Whether you're rich or poor, use what you have to bless others. Sometimes it'll be financial. Sometimes it'll be life lessons. Invest. But when he says which one proved to be a neighbor, when two people pass by the broken man and one invests and dives in, that's the neighbor, the one who showed mercy. Mercy is an explicit word of caring for those in a miserable state, caring for the needy. When he says, there is a proof at the last day of whether you are a follower of mine, he says, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me, Matthew 25. When you've fed the sick, when you've clothed the naked, when you've visited those in prison, you've done it to me. And that is a proof that your faith is alive and at work. God says, our intention towards those in need, rather than our indifference, it shows us something about our hearts. It's a proof of faith. And so he says here, religion that is pure, genuine worship, it will have an effect not just on the heart loving Jesus, but it will, you will want Jesus to go to the needy, into the broken places, into the dark places, into the struggles, into the pains. And listen to how he says it. He doesn't say just let the orphans and the widows come to you, just be open to it. No, pure and undefiled religion is this, is when you do that, you go to them. So yes, we want people to think about adoption or orphan care, but it's beyond that. Yes, we want people to be a, uniquely attuned to the widows who are in need, but it's beyond that. This is James laying down that the people of God should intentionally care for the needy. And I will say, especially the needy among them. Because as we care for the needs of the believing poor, it shows a radically different community because of God's saving grace that cares for one another's needs. So whether you put yourself in the economic category of poor or not, God says, not only should we use our mouths as a blessing, we should use our very lives, our resources, our stories, everything that we are. To get Jesus to people. Friends, let's be crystal clear. Jesus is not about just doing good deeds. He wants good deeds to go forth because they show off his good love. But we know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We don't want to just make life easier and then never know Christ. So we go not only in deed, but we go in word speaking Jesus to people. That's pure and undefiled religion. And that's what happens when the word of God is planted deep in the soul. Let's pray. Father, I love you and I just ask. I ask that you would hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. And in this moment of reflection and thought, a lot of things coming at us right now. And I ask that we would be humble enough to receive with meekness 
your sweet word. It genuinely is a word of liberty. It genuinely is a word that sets free. So Father, as much as we sometimes don't want to follow your word, I ask that God, we would say with humility and meekness, God, I accept your word as the definitive word and I want to follow you with all that I have. Father, I pray this week that when we are tempted to give full vent to our anger, that you would come in and you would bring this sermon, bring your word to our minds, that we'd be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And God, I pray that we would spend our lives asking, how have you uniquely gifted us? How is our unique story? How is our relationships, how is all that you have made us to be as individuals and as a church, how are we going to be a part of faithfully doing what Jesus came to do, which was to proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Father, as you sent your son, you sent us. So may we be on mission with Jesus in his power so that you get glory. Right now, we're just going to take a time in this spirit of prayer to just ask God, what does faithfulness look like right now? Each of you in the quietness of your heart, I encourage you, if the, if the spirit of God is just pounding something over and over in your heart and mind, you write it down. You don't let it go because... It would be a tragedy if we just said, oh, that was good, but there was not one step of application that accompanied us as we left. So just spend this time in prayer asking God that you would take him up on the opportunity to love, to speak kind words, and to receive with meekness your word, God's word. Spend this time in prayer, and then I'll close this.